Thank you, Millard. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, I've heard some good reports about the women's retreat. As a matter of fact, uh, glowing reports. Don't we thank God for the blessing there? Uh, but uh, one of the women told me that she thought next year perhaps the elders should attend so they could get straightened out. But uh, I don't know that they'll accept that invitation. For quite some time, each time I sit down to eat a meal, I look at the food that is in front of me, and I'm almost overwhelmed with the thought, what is in front of me? Many of my brothers and sisters throughout the world could never dream of having and I express that in my prayer to God. I don't know about you, but last Sunday was tremendously emotional for me. As we listened to the talk that Joel gave about the persecuted church, as we looked at the uh, videos and PowerPoints that Bill had prepared for us, I sat back there and tears were very close to my eyes. Matter of fact, that had such an impact on me this week. It's been hard to think about anything else. As I tried to pray and seek God for a sermon today, those thoughts so crowded in upon me, I could think of nothing else. And as I began to think about this Sunday, I realized also this is the weekend in which we honor our veterans with Veterans Day. And aren't we thankful for those that we do have among us? You know, when we say to a veteran, thank you for your service, don't let it just be words. But from our heart, thank you for your service. And as I began to think about veterans in the midst of all of this other stuff that was going on in my mind, I began to think about World War II. <laughs> Because those of us who are around in World War II, for us, that was really the war. It's very formative as to who we are today, what we went through during those years. And as I thought about World War II, I began to think about the fact there were two theaters of conflict, Europe and the Pacific. And even though these were the same war, they were different battles. And they were fought in different ways and under different conditions. In Europe, for example, at times, the battle was fought in intense cold and deep snow, whereas in the Pacific, it was hot and humid. Willard Hudson told me one day that after uh, his Marines had taken an island and things were peaceful, it was so hot they took off all their clothes except their helmets because monkeys were throwing coconuts at them. <laughs> different battles, different conditions but the same war. In the Pacific, there were tremendous naval battles, but the naval battles in the Atlantic largely were German submarines trying to sink supply ships, whereas in the Pacific, there were aircraft carriers and destroyers and battleships and PT boats that launched torpedoes. Even the air war was somewhat different in that there were dive bombers who would try to drop a bomb down the smokestack of a ship and uh, Corsairs and other planes that would uh, launch torpedoes, whereas that was not true in the European conflict. As I began to think about these things, I thought, that's really a paradigm 
for what we face today. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and Pakistan and Syria and North Sudan and South Sudan, they're fighting a battle that expresses itself in one way. In America, we're fighting the battle that expresses itself in a different way. To them, the enemy is very obvious and can be seen. To us, the enemy is subtle and covert. But our battle is just as important and in many ways just as intense as the one that they're fighting. They have to fight their battle. We have to fight our battle. We embrace them in prayer. Where we can, we send aid to them, where it's Bibles or something. But they fight their battle, and we fight ours. What's our battle like? What are the conditions of the battle that we face? What, what are the weapons that are used against us, and what kind of weapons do we have in our warfare? Some of those things are hard to answer. And individually and personally, what is our role in the battle? Primary passage that discusses this is Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Now, many of you I know today, if we ask you, you could stand up and recite these verses from memory because I know some of you have memorized them. This morning, let's just take some time to look at this passage and see what it has to say to us about our battle and the battle that we're fighting. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There are three interesting Greek terms in that verse. The first one, which we translate be strong in the Lord, or rather is translated that way, is a passive verb. And it is something we receive. What it is actually saying is, receive strength from the Lord. The strength you have comes from Him. In God, strength comes to you for the fight. And then interestingly, the part that says in the strength of His might, the first of these words is kratos. Kratos speaks of power that is active. We might think of an electrical wire that has a current going through it. We say there's power in that wire. And the last word is excuse. Excuse means inherent power. You walk into the gymnasium and you see a huge man powerfully built and you say there's power. When we think of our almighty God, we think of that's power. But also kratos. It is active power. It is moving. And it is that moving power of God into our lives that gives us strength. For the battle. It isn't be strong. No, it is receive strength. The kratos from the iskus, the all-powerful one. What a tremendous thought, isn't it? We're not just a bunch of folks out here on the battlefield. But we are warriors of God receiving his strength for the fight. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The word full armor is panoplia. 
The panoplia describes the outfit of the Roman soldier, which normally consisted of a breastplate, a belt, sandals, a helmet, a shield, and a sword, sometimes a spear and a cape or a robe. That was the panoplia. And Paul is saying, put on the panoplia, the whole armor. Don't leave out any element because if you do, you'll be vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Put on the whole armor and then that you can stand firm. The, the Greek word here, has the, it's the word that's used for a soldier who will stand his ground and not yield. Notice this is not aggressive but defensive. I will stand, I will not move. And I will put on the armor, the panoply, so that I can stand against the wiles of the devil. Writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said concerning Satan, we're not ignorant concerning his schemes. Sometimes I wonder if we act as if we are with his clever schemes that he uses against us, against his army. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It isn't. When some human being comes against the church, comes against us, yes, Satan is using that person, but ultimately our enemy is the force that is behind, the unseen enemy. Really often those who come against us are victims <laughs> He's grabbed them. You can't say the devil made me do it, but he still manipulates people to achieve his purposes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In the past, we've spoken more than once about the passage in James that says, Don't say, when I am tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt any man. But when lust brings forth sin. Sin is born. It is the lust within us. And we've illustrated that in the past. I'll hope you aren't be bored as we illustrate again because it's so true we need to remember this. Every one of us has within us certain spiritual ova. Satan is not omnipotent. He is not all-knowing. But he's a tremendous student and he watches us individually. There are perhaps the demons that are assigned to watch us. And discover who we are and by our behavior and by our attitude, discover what ova we have within and then do his best to fertilize that ova so it will bring forth sin. Obviously, David had within him the ova of sexual lust. That was displayed more than once and Satan studied him and knew it. So on one occasion when the armies of David were off a field fighting, he stayed back at the palace and one night was walking upon that flat roof in the evening relaxing and he looked across the way and there was another flat roof and a beautiful woman upon that roof was bathing herself. Satan fertilized the ova and out of that lust came adultery, deceit and murder difficult for us to be honest with ourselves and admit what kind of ova is there but it's there 
And we need to do our best to avoid those situations that Satan will try to, to use to fertilize that ova and bring forth the sin. We wrestle, we struggle not against flesh and blood. Interesting also the word struggle in the King James is translated wrestle. And the Greek word doesn't necessarily mean wrestle, but it means close hand-to-hand combat. Our battle with the enemy is not some guy off there in the woods and we throw a rock at him, but it's face-to-face, up close, and personal. The battle is real and in a way sometimes very individual and sometimes corporately. But we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the rulers. Now, in the satanic kingdom, there is a hierarchy. And in the angelic kingdom, there is a hierarchy. And we can't spell these out in too great detail, but we can in some. And here we see Paul doing this. The first of all, the rulers, the arche. The arche would refer to commanders-in-chief, those who have primary authority. They are over that which they're over and, in a way, answer to no one. And then the next are the exousia. Now, most of our versions will say against the powers. I think that's a... Really a sad way they translate it because exousia means someone to whom authority has been given, delegated. And so the arche will say to various exousia, I delegate you authority over this area. And to another exousia, I delegate to you authority over this area. And this is where we see the idea of territorial spirits. Back in the 1980s when at TCF we had all kinds of charismatic Speakers come in. I remember there was one that talked about a particular place he was, and he was arguing for territorial spirits. On one side of the street it was this, the other side of the street is that. And I thought, that's just a bunch of charismatic baloney. (laughs) But then as I looked into it, it isn't. Daniel chapter 10 displays that so well. You remember Daniel was struggling to find out what a particular vision meant that God had given him. And so he began to fast. He began to pray intensely, began to grieve. That went on for three weeks. And finally, at the end of three weeks, the angel Gabriel came to him. And he said, you know, the first time you started praying, God sent me to you, but I couldn't get to you because of the satanic prince of Persia that was over the area. And then finally, Michael, one of the chief princes, was sent to displace him. And I could get through. Interesting what we see there, isn't it? Both Second Peter and the book of Jude speak of those who blindly revile angelic majesties, not knowing what they're talking about. In other words, there are angelic majesties, and we need to realize that hierarchy. Jude goes back to really an apocryphal book that he quotes popular one of his day, he said when Michael, and the only angel ever labeled an archangel is Michael, when Michael the archangel contended with Satan about the body of Moses, Michael did not say to Satan, I rebuke you, because Satan was above him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. 
I read the story of a British uh, soldier during the American Revolution. His name was uh, Major Ferguson. In the 1700s, the British were armed with what was called the Brown Bess. It was a very cumbersome, long gun, not accurate. Ferguson became concerned. He wanted something easier to carry and more accurate. And so he developed a carbine and rifled it. It was so accurate he even lay on his back and shot targets at a distance, awed all of the military officers. And so they began to manufacture his weapon. During the Revolutionary War, he and two of his sharpshooters were wandering through the woods looking for the American forces. And they suddenly realized that they were hearing the sound of horses approaching. First they saw one man dressed in gray hussar clothing, And behind him was a man on a huge bay with two colored blue garment. And he said, the biggest hat I'd ever seen. He said to his men before they saw people are coming, take aim, take aim. But when he saw that man on the bay, he said, hold down, hold down. This was when chivalry was still alive. (laughs) And he realized that he was looking at a man of supreme rank. It would be inappropriate for a major to shoot that man. And so he didn't do it. Isn't that an interesting illustration? And that's what we see in the satanic and angelic kingdom. Here's the level of the satanic kingdom. And here's a level of the angelic kingdom. Somebody here can't deal with this. Somebody here has to. Somebody above. Sometimes I think it would be marvelous when we do see some kind of obvious satanic activity. Oh, God, send a powerful angel to displace it. So we, God, will not have to contend with this. Not only did I see that in Scripture, but as I began to travel about from place to place over the years, I came to experience the challenge of demonic spirits. Some of you have heard me tell about one particular place I was. And it was one of the most disturbing church situations I've ever been in. And I was alone to deal with it. And... It was a place where control was so powerful in the churches. Church leadership was treating people almost like toys. And as I dealt with that situation, I found time and again I could not think clearly. I could drive approximately 20 miles and suddenly think as clear as a bell. I would come back under that situation and be confused. I thought my mother used to have a Dutch oven, you know, kettle, big iron thing with a lid. It's almost like there was that lid over that area. When you came under it, the spirit of control and confusion dominated it. Twenty miles away, you were out from under it. To me, that was one of the most, one of the clearest demonstrations of a territorial spirit that I have ever seen. Exousia delegated authority over different regions, sometimes perhaps even maybe over different parts of town, but they're there 
warring against God, his people, his church, and a culture. And then against the world forces of this darkness, the katakrostos tuskatus, world forces of this darkness. The implication is that there are certain demonic angels whose role is to influence cultures and governments and world forces. My, don't we see that today. Even in America, we see various governmental powers, sometimes courts, making it harder and harder for us to follow our faith in Jesus Christ. I heard a news report a week or so ago about London, which now has a Muslim mayor. And in London now, it's against the law for a Roman Catholic school to have more than 50% of its student body be Roman Catholics. And so if you are a Roman Catholic family and you want to send your child to a Roman Catholic school, but 50% of their student body is already Roman Catholic, you can't send your child. Think about that. Could that ever happen here? There are signs it could. This morning or other, perhaps yesterday, I don't remember, sometime in the last 24 hours, I heard a report about a group that had started a movement to get rid of all symbols of Christianity on public grounds. And the first thing that they attacked was a memorial to World, One, World War I veterans, and it had a cross, and it was on public grounds, and it had been there since 1918. And they went to court and said, we have to get rid of that cross because that's favoring some religion. And the court ruled, indeed, we have to get rid of it. And according to this report, unless a Supreme Court undoes that lower court ruling, this group's next goal is to go to all of the military cemeteries and get rid of the crosses and the stars of David. There are forces... Katakrosmos, tus, gotus, very active in this world in powerful places that we have to stand against. Not only that, we can see how coarseness is entering our culture through the activity of these satanic spirits. I saw a man in a t-shirt that said something on it that I cannot repeat from this pulpit. What? Friday I was at Walmart and here came a woman with a black t-shirt and said this on it. My sexual preference is often. What? How could anybody dare <laughs> navigate in public with something that coarse? I sat in the emergency room of St. Francis Hospital a while back, sitting in the waiting room, waiting to get back into the emergency room of the person. And there was a large television and a program on, daytime program, talk program called The Doctors. And one of them said to the other, do you like to have sex on the couch? Oh, how about the back seat of a car? Lord, 
How can something like that be on television 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning? Katakrosmos Tuskotus is very active in our culture. And we are seeing the, the effects of it. The TCC faculty president a while back sent out an email to the faculty saying we want all the lesbians, homosexuals, that those letters, LGB, however, I forget them, to be feel welcome. So at graduation, we want all of the faculty to wear a pride stole, rainbow, so they'll know they're all welcome. I wrote an email saying, bad idea. You're supported by tax money. I don't want my tax money to do that. Not only that, a graduation should be a time to celebrate what the students have achieved in their future and not make it a political statement. I saw an email from two professors challenging that, saying, please don't do that. You're going to divide our body. We have some students who have a biblical view of life. Some of us professors have that. I doubt seriously if those pleas will be heeded. The Katakrosmos to Scotus is busy in our world, warring against us, and then against the spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. We're in a war. Now, sometimes people say, you know, God can't be a good God if he allows such a war to go on if he lets people be wounded and hurt is a commander a good man when he sends his troops into battle the war is the issue and it's never a war unless the combatants on both sides can potentially be wounded so some of us take a wound and we'll take a hit <laughs> Because the war is what it's all about. There's an enemy of God who is also an enemy of the human race because we are made in the image of God and he'll do all he can to destroy us, really to to remove some of the glory that God can get through us who are his. The war is intense. Then Paul said, here's what you need to do, first of all. Take up the full armor of God, once again, the panoplia, the whole thing, don't leave anything off, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, therefore, to stand. Again, the exhortation, don't leave off any piece of armor. Put it all on. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. The Roman soldier had a belt. That belt held the breastplate in place so it could not move. Other things were attached to it. If he didn't have that belt, the armor would flop about and be more trouble than help in the battle. And this is where it has to start for all of us. Truth. At Tulsa Christian Fellowship, the leader here, leadership here is committed 
First, to know the truth, and secondly, to not compromise on the truth. There may be some who say, well, the elders are harsh or cruel or legalistic. No, they know someday they will have to answer to God for every word spoken from this pulpit, everything encouraged in this body, everything allowed in this body, and it's all held together by the truth. You get rid of the truth, what do you have left? One major denomination next year is having its annual meeting and it would shock you if you knew which one. I'll not tell you. <laughs> In their annual meeting, they're going to have a discussion as to whether or not they should change their views on same-sex marriage. To even discuss that. And yet it's happening. It will happen. That meeting will happen. Stand firm. Having, shall we say, the belt of truth. Holding it all together. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that refers to right living. First Thessalonians has a verse that the King James says, avoid the very appearance of evil, bad translation. The Greek word there is idon, it is, is every form of evil. That's why some of your newer versions say every form or any kind of evil. Where the old thing, every form of evil, oh, don't do that, somebody, I think it's sin. That's not what that's talking about, dog. Avoid every kind of evil. The soldier of Jesus Christ does not allow evil practices in his life or her life. (laughs) And we need to be aware of that because the enemy is always trying to sneak something in. We will not sin. We will wear the breastplate of righteousness. Now, noticing every one of these, this is an aorist in the Greek, which is something you have already done. Paul says, don't wait till the enemy attacks and then try to stick it on. Put it on and wear it because you don't know when the attack's coming. So it is always like having put on the belt of truth, having put on the blessed fruit of righteousness, and having your feet shod with the preparation of gospel peace and so on and so on. This should be the way you live, soldier of Jesus Christ. The preparation of the gospel of peace. We have peace. We know we're at peace with God. We know that as we go through life, we can walk on the hardest ground, the rockiest ground, the deepest valley or the highest mountain spiritually. But we know we have the gospel that makes us at peace with God, and what else really counts. That's the bottom line, isn't it? That we have peace with God. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, Roman soldiers carried two kinds of shields. One was a round shield, smaller, 
And if he were involved in offensive combat, that was the shield he carried with his sword. And almost like a boxer using right hand and left hand, that shield and sword were offensive weapons. But there was another shield, Thurios. This, this shield was big. Soldier could hide behind it. Usually it was made out of wood, often covered with leather. And this was the shield that would be used when the enemy was launching arrows out you, at you. You would hide behind your big shield. And sometimes the archers would dip their arrows in tallow and set them on fire and launch fiery arrows at you. But you hid behind this big shield in which they would stick Sometimes that leather was doused with water, not always, but the arrow would burn itself out and you wouldn't be hurt one bit. The shield of faith, think about that. The Greek word we render faith is pistis. It has interesting connotations, has belief, but also a cognitive of that is trust. Trust. I believe who God is, and I trust him. I trust that that kratos, <laughs> that active power that Paul first mentioned will flow through me and in me in the midst of this battle that we're waging with the enemy, the flaming missiles of the evil one. And then... Most of our versions say, take up the helmet of salvation. The Greek word here is dekomai, and it really isn't take, it's accept or receive. Think about that. Salvation comes to us when we hear the gospel message. We then have to accept it. It is never imposed upon us, nor is it something we can grab unless it's offered. Salvation is, Paul wrote, you know, how shall they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless they be sent? Salvation is offered, but you have the option as to whether or not to receive it. Decomai, receive, not grab, but it's the idea of receiving or accept. Similar to the word lombano is the same way, which is often rendered in that way. And then having this description of our defensive armor so Satan can't get to us, Paul then launches into an aggressive action with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view and be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. There are two aggressive actions we take. Number one is preaching the gospel. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. How do you do it? Immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then after that, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our first aggressive action. 
get out there in the world and preach the gospel. The second is pray like all get out. <laughs> pray all prayer, all petition in the Spirit, not with the Spirit. With the Spirit means tongues, but in the Spirit. Whether you're praying in tongues or in English or Japanese or whatever, <laughs> in the Spirit, in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, not just saying a bunch of words when we pray, especially in a prayer meeting when you have folks are listening, you know. That's a challenge sometimes, isn't it? There's another important defense not mentioned in this passage, but Paul mentions it in Hebrews chapter 10, in which he says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as a manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've come to a knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for our sin but if you know it goes on and on in the wild a predator will come upon a flock of deer or a flock of sheep or a flock of anything and he'll sniff around the edge and watch and watch and watch and finally if he can get one creature separated from the flock he pounces Satan is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. If you decide that you don't need to attend church anymore, just assume you're going down. You're going down. Sad when so many people think I'll go to church on Sunday unless I have something else to do. We don't come here as a legalistic rule to get points in heaven. We come to partake of the Lord's Supper and receive the spiritual life from that. We come to encourage our brothers and sisters so they can continue to walk faithfully and receive encouragement from them. But also to honor our God in worship. It's a dangerous thing to say, I can be a solo Christian. <laughs> probably you won't succeed. Encourage one another so much the day as the day is approaching. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because if we sin willfully, and the implication is one way to avoid sinning willfully is to be in faithful and consistent fellowship with brothers and sisters. We're in a war. I could talk for another hour, but I'm not going to. Bill's looking at me. <laughs> oh, he's smiling. So let's hear the word of God. Father, we are thankful that you have honored us by calling us as warriors into your army. Oh, God, we plead that you will direct us. That when we face those very difficult times, should we turn right, left, go ahead, go back, or stand still, by your Spirit may we know, longing God to make sure you have the victory to your glory. Through Jesus, amen.